Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, she was the first woman elected governor of Michigan. Now Jennifer Granholm is President Biden's energy secretary, pushing the administration's climate change agenda. She had a lot of experience with the auto industry in Michigan. Now she's working to overcome resistance to phasing out gas-fueled vehicles to make way for electric cars and helping to sell the president's infrastructure plan, which has all kinds of funding for projects to address climate change, like electric charging stations. Senator Granholm, welcome to Political Breakdown. Glad to be on. Thanks so much for having me. Let's begin by talking about the administration and what's going on in Washington. I think more than any administration, I think, ever, uh, the Biden administration is linking infrastructure and jobs with climate change policies and investments. Talk about that strategy, if you would, and how tough a sell is it? Actually, it is not a tough sell. I mean, it might have been a tough sell a decade ago, a tougher sell. But you know what the president says? You've seen these commercials, maybe, you know, when I think of climate, I think of jobs. And it's just really true. The the whole world, we have 196 countries that have signed on to these Paris agreements because everybody understands the importance of addressing climate change and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And guess what? When you reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that means you have to have products that do that work for you. And that means that there is potentially a market out there for those products. And the question is, is the United States going to get in the game of making those products? So there's there was a study out earlier this year that said that the the market for greenhouse gas reducing products, like whether it's generating clean energy like wind turbines or making sure that industrial processes reduce their carbon emissions, like carbon capture use and sequestration, those technologies create a $23 trillion global market. So you better believe our economic competitors, our other countries are in the game. They are in it to make sure they create jobs for their people. And the president strongly believes that we should be doing that in the United States. We have stood by too long while we have bowed to the altar of cost and we haven't invested in our country and in our people and and co-partnered with our businesses to create jobs in the United States. So that's what he is determined to do. And this is the fastest growing sector globally. So he's going to make sure that we're in the game. So that sounds good. And I think it is good for a lot of people. But as you know, there's still pockets of deep resistance. I mean, even here in California, where we've been very ambitious around climate change and investments, you know, the governor got a lot of pushback from the Central Valley when he recently rolled out a plan to not only ban fracking, but move toward banning all oil extraction. So how are you talking to folks in those types of communities? And especially coming from Michigan, where I think you understand the, you know, the purple state, the the challenges of sort of, you know, the, that common language that does doesn't always exist. Thousand percent, thousand percent get it. I mean, you know, I was governor at a time 
when the auto industry was on its knees, when we, when General Motors and Chrysler were declaring bankruptcy and the suppliers to the auto industry were declaring bankruptcy. And, and we produced the internal combustion engine, which relies on fossil fuels. And so when we were in the middle of that crisis, and I honestly think this is the reason why the president asked me to lead the Department of Energy, is that we said, look, we built car 1.0, we should be building car 2.0. And that means the electric vehicle. And that means the guts to the electric vehicle. Vehicle, which is the battery. So what's the analogy for fossil fuel workers? They, they powered this country for over 100 years, and they did right by, by their families in doing so. And the question is, we want them to see themselves in the future powering of America and being able to make sure that they are part of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. If all of these oil companies are doing that and setting you know net zero carbon emissions by uh, 2050 goals like the president has set, well, then why can't we make sure that we do right by these communities? And that means that the president has put forth this intergovernmental working group, it's called, on coal and power plant communities. We've identified 25 communities across the country that have been largely reliant on fossil fuels and that now are really struggling, that are on their knees. And so we want to lift those communities from their knees to make sure that they see that they get the benefit of job creation. So this is why in the American jobs plan that the president has put forward, 40% of the benefits of those investments will go to communities that have been left behind, whether they're fossil fuel communities or communities that have lived in the shadows of power plants, like uh, communities of color, et cetera. So the president gets it that we can't leave communities behind and that they should see the benefits of this clean energy economy and the surge toward investment and not be left behind yeah. in that either. Well, and a lot of resistance, of course, comes from big fossil fuel and coal states like West Virginia and Texas and Louisiana. And my understanding is that folks in those communities, they don't believe all this green energy pitch, like, oh, there's going to be a place for you in it, in part because they see they see the messengers as being sort of coastal elites yeah. um, who don't know their culture and don't know uh, what their needs are and what their communities are like. So how do you overcome that? It's true they do see that. And this is why the president is such a great messenger. It's why I hope I can be able to help this coming from a Midwestern state. I completely get what how families feel when they've had the rug pulled out from under them for no fault of their own. And so for us to be able to devise strategies that bring job providers to those communities, that is what we are focused on. How can we make sure, for example, in West Virginia, which is a coal mining state, so that's the skills that the many of the workers in West Virginia have. And so are there analogous kinds of jobs that would make sense to go into West Virginia? Well, look, lo and behold, it turns out that West Virginia partially, for example, is sitting on a geothermal hotspot. So if you've mined for coal, maybe you can help mine for geothermal. Or maybe we can take a look at having you be part of the move to attach carbon capture use and sequestration technology on power plants so that we can reduce and eliminate greenhouse gas emissions off of fossil fuels. So there are technologies that are related to the kinds of skills that are already in these places. And this is why we want to make sure we, and this is what the American Jobs Act does. It steers investment to communities like that. For example, Joe Manchin, who obviously represents West Virginia as a United States Senator, he's got a bill that's incorporated into the American Jobs uh, Plan, which is which will make sure that companies who locate 
in uh, fossil fuel communities, in old industrial communities, get a significant tax credit for locating a manufacturing facility there. But we want to make sure we do all we can policy-wise to attract job providers so that people aren't cynical. It's easy to be to train people, but if you're training them for not, uh, nothing, that, for no job, that doesn't make sense. You have to put the job there first and then train people behind it. All right. So we're talking about on the ground right now, but let's zoom up because you did mention Joe Manchin in Congress. Um, I want to ask you like kind of about the broad politics of this, because it feels like Republicans have been really good at weaponizing the Green New Deal um, against Democrats in some cases. Um, I know that you just got some criticism from right wing media, especially um, which then came into mainstream media over stock options that you owned in a private electric bus company. We see Solyndra still being brought up. Um, what how how do you deal with kind of the politics of this because it has become this right left issue um which i'm assuming is not the way you all want it to be thought about clearly not i mean this is a, this honestly if you poll the individual components as you know of the american jobs plan do people want to see investment in infrastructure Heck yes, they want to see investment in infrastructure. They want better roads and bridges. Do people want to see us invest in the technologies of the future so that we can take them to scale and provide jobs of the future for their children and their grandchildren? Heck yes, they want to see America leading. Do, 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 do the Americans out there want to see us not lose our manufacturing backbone to competitor nations so that we can be building these products and stamping them made in America and exporting them? Heck yes, Americans want to see that the individual components of this. Do people want to see broadband universally available for people? Yes, they do. These components are so popular. And so the question is, um, really, the question revolves around how you pay for it. And the Democrats believe that we can reduce the, the corporate tax rate to a place that, uh, or at least have the corporate tax rate raised to a place below what it was when Donald Trump uh, came into office and made those huge tax cuts, but still pay for these investments in America. And the Republicans don't wanna do any corporate tax, uh, any adjustment to the corporate tax. They don't wanna raise corporate taxes. They wanna put it on user fees for individuals, which, which often means raising, for example, the gas tax, which wouldn't even come close to paying for this whole thing. So that's really kind of the big issue is who's paying for this. Democrats believe that we should readjust what, what these massive tax breaks were. And Republicans believe that we should be putting it honestly, uh, as it turns out, on, on everyday citizens who maybe use the roads. And we and, you know, Joe Biden just yeah. doesn't believe it should be done that way. All right. Don't go away. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.
And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and today we're talking with Jennifer Granholm. She was the first woman to be elected governor of Michigan, and today she's the Secretary of Energy for the Biden administration. You know, you're very much uh, Secretary Granholm associated with Michigan, uh, but in fact you were born in Canada, came to California when you were just, I think, four or five years old, and your family, I think, settled in Orange County. So, Tell us about that. We always like to ask our guests about, like, where did they come from? So what was growing up in the OC like? Well, you know, it, it, I didn't grow up in Orange County. I spent a little bit of time there, but my dad was, um, you know, my dad and my mom moved down for economic opportunity. And my dad had a job there, but then we moved to San Jose and then we moved further north to uh, San Carlos, which is where my mom is right now, as a matter of fact. Um, and I went to school at UC Berkeley uh, as an undergraduate and then uh, went on to law school. But, but um, you know, the, the great state, the golden state gave me and my family an opportunity as immigrants here. I, when I was four, uh, we, I was brought here and it's been very good to, to us. So we're, you know, it's fun to have a leg in, in two states like that, Michigan and California. Very different states, of course. Um, you... Tell us a little bit about your family. I mean, were you expected? I, th I think I read you were the first to go to college. Was politics a conversation point at the dinner table? Like, was this a was this a career path they would have foreseen? <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, you know, I was the first in my family to go from to go to college. My dad was raised in this, you know, in a in a little tiny cottage that was kind of off the grid from his parents who migrated from during the Great Depression from um, Sweden and, and Norway, and they didn't even have running water. There was no indoor toilet or anything like that. Totally poor. And my mom was born in Newfoundland, who, you know, they call it the rock off of the East Coast. And they met as tellers in a bank in, um, in British Columbia. And then they decided they would move down to California where they were recruiting um, people who could be bankers. Uh, my mom uh, ended up being a homemaker and my dad ended up um, being president of the of the bank, so oh, wow. it, the little bank, a little bank that he um, that he was part of. So, so it was uh, a, you know for them this was a great opportunity. But they didn't, you know, my dad was a Republican. You know, my mom sort of went along with him, although she's now flipped to the other side. Uh, <laughs> he he passed away uh, last year. But but uh, bottom line is we didn't really talk about politics much. But when I went, you know, I, I uh, went to Berkeley uh, and became aware. <laughs> you can't help that. but become aware of Berkeley, right? <laughs> was that, was that uh, your political awakening, would you say? It was a great awakening. Honestly, it was really actually, I mean, before I got to Berkeley, I was, I was a little bit aware I had worked on um, a presidential campaign before that. But but uh, bottom line is um, uh, it wasn't in my family's um, DNA that I would become a governor of Michigan. And people who are listening might think, well, you're right, you're in California. Why would you go to Michigan? And I, my husband and I met at, at law school at, at Harvard. And so he's from Michigan. And so I married Michigan and lived there for <laughs> Gotta go there, yeah. And you did really well there. You became, I think, US attorney in Michigan and then attorney general before becoming governor. But you and your husband have an interesting story uh, because it, it sounds like he was the one who seemed destined for public he office. He was. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, when he was growing up, I mean, he was, you know, he thought he was going to be, um, you know, either he comes from a big Irish Catholic family, he was either going to be Pope 
or president. You know, that was it. <laughs> Very low like, expectations in that family, yes, I see. Exactly. Well, getting, getting married, was that was the end of the Pope dream. <laughs> well, I'll just say that being first gentleman of Michigan was not on his list, but he has been such an amazing partner. He, he teaches at um, UC Berkeley now, and uh, he teaches leadership. And he's been such a unbelievable partner uh, to me in this whole effort and to our, of course, our kids and everything. So yeah, it was an unusual um, turn of fate for, for him and for me, because uh, I, I didn't expect to be in that position either, but um, it's worked out okay. So I'm, I, you know, when we were researching this, there was a really interesting interview you gave after leaving office where you both talked about this and that it was challenging to sort of wrap your heads around these role reversals. I'm curious, role reversals, I put in quotes, right? Because obviously women can do anything they want. Of but course. have you talked to our vice president and her husband about this at all? <laughs> Actually, Dan just had a, a drink with uh, Doug Emhoff about this. And I, I'm a friend of uh, Kamala Harris. So yes, over the course of time, in fact, um, I was part of what is known as Emerge, which uh, you in the Bay Area or many uh, who are politically aware in the Bay Area knows trains and helps uh, women to decide to run for office and then supports them when they're they're in office. And she was part of that. And um, so I got to know her back then before she was even married to Doug. And Dan has had a really uh, fun conversation with Doug Emhoff about being second gentleman and how what that is. But of course, you know, in the in the ensuing decades, things have evolved so fast, you know, that I think people it's not as hopefully not as unusual anymore that you would see a, a woman in charge of a, having a very important office and then her husband in, in a supportive role. Hopefully we'll see a lot more of that. These should not be gender dynamics, right? They should just be based on competency. <laughs> but um, but that's not often the way our brains work. <laughs> yeah, you know, Maurice and I both uh, have met Doug Emhoff, I think when Kamala Harris was a senator, and he seems to relish being married to a public figure. What was the toughest part about it for your husband? I think the toughest part for him was that he, you know, I mean, he is, he had ambition, right? And when we, um, you know, when I was first elected as attorney general of Michigan and then as governor, he had his own business and um, many of the, of the people that he was uh, consulting to, had the leadership consulting business, were um, might have or were doing business with the state. And he had to shut that down out of ethics, you know, for ethics reasons, you wanna make sure that there was, there's no uh, crossover conflict, anything. And so that decision was a was you know was hard because he had built up um, that expertise and and that in that work. So I think that was really tough. Now the the flip side he would say is that he got the privilege of being sort of the the main the primary parent for our three fabulous kids. He has been such an amazing role model for them. He also um, now teaches uh, all of this too. So it's been a, a great life and a great. Um, you know, it's worked out just fine for him. But I think initially there was a lot of, you know, there was issues related to ego and all of that, that he would um, he would be very frank about if he were on with us today. Well, maybe he'll be our next guest. I want to remind our listeners, if you're joining us now, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are talking with U.S. Energy Secretary and former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm. Yeah, I, I think one of the quotes he had given was how he regretted letting the police, the, the security detail, like drive the kids to school, and he, he fixed that. Um, but let's talk a little bit about Michigan. I mean, you oversaw 
the state during a very tumultuous economic time. Um, I think a lot of the experience you had there around the auto industry, as you mentioned earlier, is one of the reasons that, that Joe Biden tapped you for this job. I mean, what were the biggest sort of lessons there in terms of, you know, coming out of the the you know, coming into the mortgage meltdown and sort of dealing with all of these differing pressures. I think the biggest lesson is that you have we you have to steer into the wind, meaning that in Michigan for so long, because we had built um, this vehicle the, and were known as, you know, the automotive capital of the world, it was difficult for people to imagine diversifying. And so, um, or, you know, we had talked about diversification, but actually doing it right. and, and making sure you um, acted upon it was, was not as easy as that. And so having people diversify, having us diversify both inside the auto industry, meaning making the electric vehicle was, a, was quite a, a, a new step for people and, and diversifying outside the auto industry as well so that we weren't balancing our economic table on one leg. And so, you know, leadership means that you have to tell people some, some tough truths. And so a lot of the manufacturing jobs that we had done in the past were going away and we had to tell, you know, parents and their young people that what was good enough for your parents in terms of education will not be good enough for your kids. They've got to go on, they've got to go get a college degree or they've got to get a certificate. They've got to, you know, earn, learn a trade that is that has some level of computers or whatever in involved as well as uh, making sure that we had the the educational institutions prepared to make sure that they did do certifications and we had to invest in our community colleges to make sure that all kids were able to get that sec post-secondary degree so making shifting people's mindset i think that's the hardest part of, of of it but it's easier to do i will say when you are down because people see we have to make a change. We're on a burning platform. We have to jump. And this is the direction we've got to go in. So, you know, we, we made that jump. I mean, things are still challenging, obviously, in the industrial Midwest, but Michigan came out stronger. And, and a lot of that thanks, thanks to the investment by the federal government, the partnership to save the auto industry. California, as you know, you lived here for so long, is now a very deep blue state. And the disagreements in Sacramento are really between moderate Democrats and more liberal or progressive Democrats. Not so in Michigan. I mean, Michigan is a very purple state, as we saw in 2016. And I'm wondering if you felt you had to make some compromises that you would rather not have made. And I'm thinking, for example, I think you signed a package of bills that were backed by the NRA. Michigan is a big gun state. Um, and there was, I think, a stand your ground bill you signed. I mean, how did you think about those choices and those compromises? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there are there is no doubt that when you are the governor of a purple state, and in this case, the state has a overwhelming um, legislate Republican legislature. So I was I was a Democrat elected as governor, but I had a Republican House and a Republican Senate and a Republican Supreme Court and a Republican Attorney General and a Republican Secretary of State. So I was surrounded by that. And so, as I would say to our team, you know, compromise means that we're moving the ball forward. We can't just say no to everything. However, I will say that I said no to a lot. I used to joke that my favorite four-letter word was veto, and <laughs> I vetoed more bills than any uh, governor in the history of Michigan as a result of uh, what was coming at me. But it also means that you do have to compromise on at least moving the ball forward. So if you get half a loaf, at least you're able to eat. And then you can go back and get the second half of the loaf uh, later. It's very pragmatic. But when you are surrounded in that way, you have to, you have to, you know, you have to do compromise. 
Um, I'm curious. I mean, as Scott kind of alluded to, Michigan has been in the news so much this past year, um, from the COVID protests to these credible, really scary threats against the current governor, a Democrat, Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, what's it been like watching all of that play out and seeing the state you used to lead just like kind of dominate the news, not in all ways you probably wanted it to? Yeah, I mean, it didn't dominate the news in the way I wanted to when I was there. <laughs> we were going through uh, such a recession and the auto industry and all of that. So Michigan is uniquely positioned to have, uh, it looks like, uh, the news focus on it. But yeah, I've, I, Gretchen Whitmer is a friend. She was in the, in con in, uh, the state legislature when I was governor, and she is uh, wonderful. She's got a ramrod, a strong backbone, and she has been able to navigate this. And because of her... Um, you know, she's very down to earth. She's very pragmatic and she's just going to tell it like it is. And I think that's why she has very strong popularity. Very, she's supported by the people, even though the gerrymandering in Michigan has left her with a, um, you know, a legislature that is Republican. She has been able to um, withstand, I think, a lot of the, the onslaught. Now, I will say that there has been a bleeding over of a lot of the, um, you know, the harsher, um, you know, conspiracy theorists, et cetera. You saw that she had uh, a lot of people with guns, et cetera, on the steps of the Capitol threatening her. And that is that goes a step further, certainly, than anything that I ever experienced. And so it is a good th thing that she's strong. And I'm hopeful that that kind that wave of sentiment calms down now that we have a new president and one that is interested in unifying and pragmatism and getting jobs for people across America and um, instead of interested in dividing people. Well, as Marisa sort of alluded to, there was this, you know, um, credible threat to kidnap her and yeah. put her on trial. The I think it was the Wolverine Watchmen. Uh, and the militia groups are quite prevalent in Michigan. What is it about that state, you think, that uh, makes it for fertile territory for that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it's it's not just Michigan, but um, Michigan has a strong, um, you know, the the militia started in Michigan, or at least there's a very um, active, there has been an active um, militia, um, the Michigan militia group, um, and it is um, there are strands certainly uh, of people who feel who are very anti-government. It started in that way. They, there was a very strong Tea Party movement in Michigan, and that sort of evolved to be uh, this new breed of, um, of folks. But I do, I will say, I mean, Michigan has, um, you know, a really strong hunting um, and fishing culture, really strong outdoors culture, beautiful Upper Peninsula, very unspoiled, where, you know, for generations, people hunted and, and you know, with their families, and it's part, it's just part of the, that outdoor culture is part and parcel of 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 michigan and and so i, I wouldn't not, equate yeah, just that culture yeah. with the extreme versions of that that you are seeing on the news well as you know we have some of that here in california too a very diverse state all right we only have about a minute left and we love to end on a on a fun note so we understand that you played the part of sarah palin during the 2008 debate prep with v then vp candidate joe biden how did you channel your fellow governor? Uh, and what kind of preparation did it take? How much fun was you that? Betcha. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I joke that I became a paleontologist. I ended up um, studying all of her debate prep because she 
had done a lot of debates as well. Uh, you know, she and I served together as fellow uh, governors. She overlapped with us. So I really, you know, you study everything. This time around, I was, I for Joe Biden, I was Elizabeth Warren. Uh, yeah. I was Amy Klobuchar. <laughs> Very <laughs> I, adaptable. Uh, I, ended up, I was Marianne Williamson even. So uh, so I, I've taken on a lot of these characters. Did you bring wow. your crystals to that one? Or like... <laughs> <laughs> when, when Sarah Palin walked out and said, can I call you Joe? Did you, what did you think? We got almost everything, but I didn't get that part. I didn't, <laughs> you know, we, but we, we anticipated a lot, but that one we missed. All right. Well, Jennifer Granholm, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate taking time at such a busy moment back in Washington. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks so much. It was fun to be on. You betcha. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and just a reminder, you can find lots more of KQED's politics coverage and analysis in our weekly Political Breakdown newsletter. You can sign up at kqed.org slash political breakdown. And we're always looking for guest ideas, so feel free to email or tweet those over to us uh, anytime. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. He is off this week taking a well-earned break, but we so appreciate everything he does. Special shout-out to Guy. We don't even know what it is until he leaves. <laughs> Our engineer is the unfoppable Katie McMurrin. KQED's other team also includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin, Lindsay, Vinny Tong, and Erica Aguilar. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. Hi, I'm David Axelrod, CNN senior political commentator, former senior advisor to President Obama, and host of the Axe Files podcast. Join me each week as I interview key figures shaping our world from politics to the arts to sports and beyond. Listen on your favorite podcast app or ask your smart speaker to play The Axe Files with David Axelrod.